coordinated entry providers are saying that, you know, their biggest influx is the 55 and over on a fixed income and, you know, even saying we are not a geriatric system, yet the biggest influx is seniors. Um, you know, and they also said coordinated entry isn't designed to serve elders and not specialized in making those care decisions. So they need, they're saying they need solutions for folks who are 55 plus who are now becoming homeless. Hi friends, this is Carrie Morrison. Welcome back to Heart Forward Conversations from the Heart. This week, we will return to the studio to complete the conversation with Amory Thomas and Layla Towery from the Future Organization. As we described last week, their research firm was sponsored by Brilliant Corners and funded by the California Community Foundation and Cedars-Sinai as part of an initiative involving the participation of the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, the L.A. County Department of Health Services, and Genesis L.A., with the intention to draw attention to the issues affecting licensed residential facilities that care for people with serious mental illness in our communities. If you did not have a chance to listen to part one of this conversation, I would encourage you to do so as we unpack the significant findings of their research in that conversation. In this concluding episode, we will connect the dots between our crisis of homelessness and the precarious state of our system of adult residential facilities. And as you will learn, we are going to practice moving away from the label of board and care homes and gravitate toward terminology of licensed adult residential facilities, which includes two types of housing, ARFs and RCFEs, otherwise known as adult residential facilities and residential care facilities for the elderly. Well, welcome back, Amory and Layla, uh, for the second part of this conversation that we started last time on this report that you were uh, commissioned to write, uh, the Serving Our Vulnerable Populations, Los Angeles County Adult Residential Facilities and Residential Care Facilities for the Elderly. As I expected, there was so much for us to talk about that it could not do it justice in just one conversation. So thank you for being willing to come back and we're going to finish it and we're also going to uh, unpack s- some of the recommendations that you have, hopefully, will stimulate our listeners to begin thinking about how they can better either inform themselves or advocate for some of the ideas that you want to posit. Thanks again. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for being here again. So the last time we were, we were uh, finishing up the different subcategories of your research and the last one that we left on the table, which is, is super important just in terms of, of the crisis that we see, uh, on, on the streets, not only in our county, but the state, is how is it that we make a better connection between this market of adult residential facilities and residential care facilities for the elderly? So we're using our nomenclature again, ARS and RCFEs. How do we make this connection to actually being a viable resource in the broad spectrum of housing that it would help to address homelessness? And you started to assert in the last conversation that there's a lack of awareness of, 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 our, of the market users, policymakers, as to how critical this resource is, and maybe even not a full understanding of how many people have arrived at, a, a, at one of these facilities having had experience of homelessness, either directly or indirectly. Can you talk a little bit about what your research found about the history of, of where residents came from. You know, there's this notion of sort of direct placements from experiencing homelessness and indirect placements of people experiencing homelessness. So when an individual experiencing homelessness, you know, is encountered by our continuums of care and our, our, our systems of care in a street or an interim housing situation, um, oftentimes they're at a point of crisis. You know, they might have, uh, a mental health crisis, they might have medical needs or a medical crisis, or they might have a, a, an interaction with uh, law enforcement, or it might be a justice involvement. So there's a lot of different pathways by which individuals can move through these various points of systems and then eventually find themselves in an ARF or an RCFE even. And it's actually really difficult to track that. What we found is that, you know, for the, for the individuals that had believed that they had come through direct to the era for RCFE from homelessness, which is about 10.6% of our sample of about 625 individuals. 
uh, we discovered that most of them had made many different sort of steps and it wasn't actually they had moved directly from experiencing homelessness on the street or interim housing but they had multiple steps through medical uh, facilities they had multiple sometimes justice involvement sometimes uh, mental health facilities or mental health intervention and that's what makes it really difficult to understand about the real impacts of individuals uh, who have these experiences in ARFs and RCFEs is because definitionally it's really hard to say you know what's a direct move versus indirect move and 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 that's that's not really i mean the truth is more organic and when we actually looked at it our estimate was that as many as 35% of individuals housed especially on the ARF side it's probably closer to 50% had come through from experience of homelessness do you think the 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 federal government commitment to the notion of housing first has perhaps you know housing first was defined I don't know, 15 years ago when conditions are much different than they are than they are right now, there is, I think, this opportunity with with the adult residential facility, for example, to provide housing plus a, a significant amount of treatment, which is necessary in order to maybe eventually live independently in housing. What are your, what are your thoughts about that, Layla? Housing first um, comes from the philosophy on um, harm reduction, right? Versus you have, I guess, before housing first, it was you need to abstain, you need to be sober, and then you can get a voucher, right? So uh, in terms of housing first, the idea of bringing people indoors and, you know, meeting that criteria of your house now and you've removed the stresses of the street so that you can go through a recovery process is a great idea and important. What's missing is how we define housing. And so we've already talked about in part one that uh, residential care is not housing. There's, there's no lease agreement. There are house rules, but there's no lease agreement um, or tenancy rights. So yes, there's an opportunity to bring boarding uh, license residential facilities into the continuum of care as a step through. And, you know, that's defined by, you know, what kind of services should an individual engage in? What do they want to participate in? Everybody has their own unique treatment plan, right? But having those resources available as they are in permanent supportive housing across the board, um, because I think we saw a lot of service variation in licensed facilities in terms of how service rich or, um, you know, are they meeting the minimum criteria for licensing or doing more? Do they have a connection with an outpatient program, um, you know, or do they have a connection with FSP? And so we saw a wide range of opportunities there. Um, just bringing it back to housing first Absolutely, there are individuals that may require this pathway, especially if they're of a certain age or, you know, have complex health conditions that may prevent them from moving forward into an independent setting and others that should move into an independent setting. One of the, when your report was first released a month ago, one of the salient, I, I really think the LA Times could have done a deeper dive into uh, into the rich data that you pre presented. but We have a lot of news to report on every day. Yes, yeah. That's why we're doing this <laughs> two-part interview. But one of the big, the big uh, sound bites was the fact that you had identified uh, 6,400 unoccupied beds, mm. particularly within RCFE facilities. And so as we're talking about the link between situation on the street how many people who are the homeless population is growing older and we have all these vacant beds that that actually was a stunning finding yeah i mean especially when you put that in the context of the 2023 point in time count captured by lasa you look at state level data from across california our uh, population of people experiencing homelessness both in the county and the state is aging just like our you know the face of our of, of our state our country globally we're an aging population and we really have to create linkages in terms of our continuums of care and our our, our our systems of housing and and service to really address you know the growth of people of age and in particular you know ARFs and RCFEs RCFEs are going to play an increasingly important role 
in serving individuals, you know, with very, you know, you know from uh, various vulnerable populations, especially those who have experience of homelessness, because to be frank, it can happen to any of us. Any of us can have one wrong move, one bad turn, one miss of the social safety net, and we find ourselves in need of a little help. And this is a really important aspect in terms of understanding, you know, how how tenuous and close we are in this society to, you know, to having some of the you know, um, uh, some of these needs ourselves. But yeah, uh, definitely in terms of those 6,400 beds, what would it take to activate those beds? Well, we don't have to build anything. And that's really the key point is activating these 6,400 beds. And we know it's highly probable that the population of, of, of individuals experiencing homelessness over the age of 60 right now, that would be a perfect match. It cut that population nearly in half in Los Angeles County. Activating those beds, we don't have to acquire property. We merely need to pay for the services, and that's that's a highly efficient way for government. You know, we always say buy, build, or borrow with government. Well, this is a chance for us to borrow from these facilities until we can effectively reduce this uh, this this crisis or build enough units to address needs in, in other ways. And that's the opportunity. Yet. Coordinated entry providers are saying that you know. Their biggest influx is the 55 and over on a fixed income and, you know, even saying we are not a geriatric system, yet the biggest influx is seniors. Um, you know, and they also said coordinated entry isn't designed to serve elders and not specialized in making those care decisions. So they need, they're saying they need solutions for folks who are 55 plus who are now becoming homeless and they shouldn't have to choose between a home um, or being and maintaining their medication. Yeah, critical issue on the horizon, which I think we'll touch upon again in in the recommendations that we're going to talk about. The last thing before we move into the recommendations is that we're not going to take time to talk about it in this conversation, but certainly am driving people to the chapter in your report about the econometric analysis that you did that actually documents the significant cost of, you know, servicing people while they're homeless in our on our streets and our communities compared to the relative uh, costs of, of housing people in, in licensed facilities. Do you want to share just a couple of sound bites that will intrigue people enough to open this report up? Well, I mean, it's really interesting the amount of funding, you know, that serving an individual experiencing homelessness. And again, we're talking about your your average individual or, you know, the, you know, the most mean or median individual experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. Not every homeless individual will be hospitalized. Not every homeless individual will or individual experiencing homelessness will have a justice involvement. But in terms of our total costs, and we're talking about our costs from the 88 cities in L.A. County, the county, you know, all costs considered, you know, we're talking about uh, cost savings of, you know, you know, between housing someone in an ARF or RCFE versus serving people, you know, living you know, without a home, it's a cost savings of more than $13,000 per individual per year. And that really speaks a lot also to what we're willing to pay, you know, to deal with a situation or to deal with the needs of people at the street level versus what we're actually paying these facilities, which are stabilizing individuals and providing better care outcomes. But that's the that's the most important uh, uh, finding that I think we have to share, you know, is that the taxpayers of L.A. County could be better served by funding ARFs and RCFEs at more appropriate levels rather than continuing to fund, you know, at a very high level, you know, these, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, these services are going to continue invariably to be delivered on the street. But the fact that it's $13,000 difference that we're willing to pay on the street versus in these facilities is, is, and we bit, have a county homeless population of about 70 odd thousand people on any yeah. given night. Yeah. 70 plus thousand. And, you know, of course that, that increased recently, according to losses, 2023 point in time count, I think it increased by almost 10%. So let's move into the recommendations. And in your report, you, you have over 50, so we're not going to do, we're not even going to take one a minute. We're, I pulled out 10. <laughs> and hopefully these are the 10 that you you uh, you would like to share, and we certainly can modify one of these. But let's start, first of all, with, you, you referenced the importance of raising awareness on the part of elected officials, local, municipal, county, state, I would even argue our congressional representatives because of how so many things are tied to Medicaid and other federal uh, and Social Security. <laughs> so let's add federal federal officials. 
We can we can definitely agree to that. Okay, okay. <laughs> so um, you indicate uh, quote that the, this much of what is shared in this report has to be absorbed and taken seriously by elected officials. Uh, otherwise, we run the risk by not propping up and not just propping up, but actually investing in this um, system, that w- which is pretty fragile and fragmented right now. We, we run the risk of actually exacerbating our homelessness crisis. I would I would say this. I know you may not say this, but every elected official should pledge to ensure no loss of any bed within their district uh, or jurisdiction. And that I would encourage every elected official to go visit at least two licensed facilities in their district just to understand and see what what is at stake and who's who's operating these places and who lives there. Um, But how strongly do you feel about the urgency of this? This is the paramount call or the clarion call out of our recommendations. We need the active awareness and participation of our elected officials to lead public policy debates and to direct funding to sustain, expand, maximally utilize uh, these facilities which already exist, you know, these housing resources, these care resources, these highly successful mechanisms by which we can serve individuals living with mental illness, with experience of homelessness, and a variety of other care needs that already exist in our communities. You know, they need to make the public aware because the public tends to follow what our elected officials are talking about. Our elected officials have press conference, our elected officials direct funding, our elected officials have the power to change laws, minds, and hearts. And paramount to anything else. We've heard a lot of discussion about the construction of new units in PSH. And again, this is where we have to be careful as researchers. But having conducted this research and also coming from a public policy background myself, not hearing this housing resource, this care resource on the lips of many, uh, many legislators and many elected officials across the state, the county, our cities. It's really critical. And then we hear from the owner and operators that they don't feel like they're heard or that they're, that they're seen. They're not heard and seen because, you know, we talk about these other resources that are being utilized to address the crisis of homelessness. But it's really critically important that from the state level to the local community block level, that all agencies, all elected officials, and, you know, I, I don't want to say that there aren't, you know, individuals and there aren't uh, um, elected bodies that that, that are addressing this. I mean, we hear a lot from the LA County Board of Supervisors specifically about what can we do, you know, to aid board, board and care and slash ARFRCFE facilities. But I, I wonder why we haven't heard about this from, you know, other cities within the county and why, why we haven't heard about this from our elected officials at the state level directly. We hear about it from state agencies, but we don't hear about it from, for example, our most important elected officials without naming any names. (laughs) I think that if elected officials had the experience of visiting an ARF or RCFE in their own jurisdiction and community, it would be readily apparent what the need and opportunity is. It doesn't take much to to, uh, unveil that. Especially when you compare what they're going to see there to what the nice PSH buildings look like in serving the same population. There's a huge disparity. So the second recommendation you had, it just follows along on this one. Uh, you, you, you said, quote, leadership and bravery are required to integrate ARS and RCFEs into public policy discussions. Are, are you suggesting that that is because there's no natural constituency asking for these improvements? Well, it's difficult to, to ask for what you're otherwise unaware of. <laughs> And in the political calculus of an elected official, if there's no clarion call, if there's no urgency, if there's no burning platform, if it ain't broke, well, why fix it? Um, the focus, again, like I you know, noted previously, the focus is on building you know new independent units. And I think I mentioned in in, in our last session that uh, you know there's a certain bias against congregate facilities. There are some antiquated notions. There's a lack of of perception of the capability of what these facilities could become or perhaps what they should become with best practices and better funding. And that's really, uh, you know, our best recommendation is, you know, somebody has to take the lead here to 
inform the public and inform the policy debate across government to really integrate this with our with with all the deans that we have. So a third recommendation you made relative to the pantheon of local governments and elected officials is that indeed more funding is required to sustain and increase service capacity uh, from ARS and RCFE serving the needs of individuals and providing transitional and permanent housing for vulnerable individuals. And that this market is in direct competition with funds that are typically allocated for the development and creation of permanent supportive housing. I will note that in the next few years, we have two really important funding streams that are going to be up for grabs again. Uh, Measure H in the county provided a quarter cent sales tax increase, uh, and that will be back on the ballot again in, in, I think, four years potentially we make a run at ensuring some of that money is earmarked for this um, population. And in the city of LA, Triple H uh, was a bond measure to provide a billion dollars for um, permanent supportive housing. So is this kind of what you're thinking about is beginning to position in the minds of those who would be crafting these, these fiscal measures? There's got to be room at the table for this type of housing. Absolutely. I think that if more folks are aware of the opportunity and this missing array and the continuum, that it would make sense to, you know, affordable and permanent supportive housing providers who could potentially interface and have a resource for individuals who are evicted or not placed appropriately. Um, Those funding streams have enabled the construction of thousands and thousands of units. And I'd argue there's enough money to go around. Um, But the stakeholders need to come to the table and understand the opportunity to support our existing infrastructure of licensed facilities and to build upon them because we won't have sort of the the red tape restriction of the HUD funded um, development further training everyone in the system to get them to understand what these are as a resource. How do you work with them? Who needs to go there? How are we triaging and assessing individuals in terms of their service plan and housing navigation so that we can effectively use the beds? You know, um, back when I did public administration at USC, you know, one of my favorite professors told me about the 710 rule. He was, he was a great guy, the city manager of Burbank, and he, he, you know, he's a brilliant dude. 710 rule is that, you know, you have 7% interest, run it out over 10 years, you double your investment, or the 10-7 rule inversely. So we have an increase of people experiencing homelessness in LA County, 10% per annum. That means we're going to double the population under seven years. We need a larger scale, greater mass effect solutions than the rate at which we can build or acquire individual units. And we need to be innovative and we need to think laterally in terms of how can we, I mean, are we leaving money on the table? Are we leaving lives unassisted, unaided? And, you know, for me, it's a, it's, it's an ethical and moral calling that we had to include these recommendations in this report. And, you know, we know that the report's onerous and it's a lot to read and it's a lot of detail, but we created these specifically in the hopes that, you know, the people that are the decision makers and the people that are members of the public and the people that really want to see change, that they can put change to field. And we do need congregate facilities to be able to address our our burgeoning multiplicative needs to address just the sheer numbers of, of, of individuals experiencing homelessness right now. It just increases every day. So that that's a great segue to your fourth recommendation that I picked out. You point out that we need to view ARS and RCFEs as, as, as a genuine housing resource, and the federal government's view of what constitutes housing is antiquated. I, I will say that yesterday I was actually at an event where um, Mayor Bass spoke mm-hmm. uh, at the at the Ebel, and she said that um, a short-sighted view of, of HUD is that they think of housing only as permanent supportive housing. And so, and she, she actually, I think, agrees with your definition that, uh, that this is antiquated and that she specifically said that there needs to be an openness to policy change. Now, in yesterday's We'd panel, love to have a conversation with her right, about this. She was speaking about the need for interim housing, you know, mm. because the federal government has stopped funding it. But I yeah. think there's openness and she's had room. I mean, she's had time in, in Washington to make these connections. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's 
possible we can get the federal government to change their definition of housing? You know, um, I think that it would take a little bit of time. I know that, you know, federal government agencies tend to move in very slow and broad policy cycles, you know, and that's only when they have a stable uh, party in charge of the federal government. I think it's really difficult to get, you know, I mean, it's like, a you know, you're trying to make a cruise ship to turn, turn around, you know, or, or, a, or aircraft carrier to turn around. It takes, you know, these big wide turns. It takes forever to, you know, get HUD in the opposite direction. And, and maybe HUD doesn't need to head in the opposite direction. Maybe they just need some minor policy change to relent and allow a little bit of light and a little bit of innovation in from the side. But, it, but, but it's a structural problem. But we can't entirely blame HUD because at the local level in terms of, <clears throat> you know, regardless of where we fund our resources, in the policy discussions and in our planning and in our integration of services, we can certainly do more without necessarily having to change the federal government. Okay, yeah. that gives us some hope. Yeah, I think we're we're already spending the money inefficiently, right? <laughs> we're we're spending it when people go from one system to another to another and those, you know, medical bills rack up or, you know, the justice involvement, all of those expenses. So it's about getting the alignment and avoiding all that transfer and churn in the system and putting it where it needs to go. So I'm, what does our population need? How old are they? How many are flowing through CES that have co-occurring, you know, comorbidities or health disparities or whatever it is? I mean, even within the market, we have circular service flows where individuals are placed by system users at various ARFs and RCFEs that may not be ideal for their individual needs. Therefore, they find themselves transferred to another ARF or RCFE or yet another ARF or RCFE. And this is where a lot of this integration and innovation and, you know, having the participation of, you know, state agencies all the way down to local and continuance of care system users, getting the right information about the capabilities of every facility, you know, out there, you know, to you know, the people that need it and placing individuals correctly the first time with a facility that best suits their needs is a way to really massively increase our utilization. So we're talking about 20% of individuals that leave ARFs or RCFEs, they go to another one. And, you know, when, when, you know, it's one out of five, that definitely points to a lot of uh, um, perspective inefficiency. And largely that's about getting placements right the first time and making sure individuals have access to wraparound services that meet, meet so their needs. So we're, we're reading each other's mind because the, the fifth recommendation that I pulled was this, that you, you suggest the need for a centralized public navigation service or function for mm -hmm. ARFs and RCFEs to ensure that vacant beds are not only maximally utilized, but also that you say that people are in the right place where they need to be for the services they need. So um, I think you've made the case as to why this is important. What could that look like and who would actually do that? Well, I wouldn't necessarily want to recommend. I mean, we have several county agencies that can effectively act as air traffic control because they're already very much in, uh, engaged, you know, with uh, networks of facilities and whatnot, and they provide enhanced and enriched funding to sustain and enhance the, the, the care and outcomes for for um, broad segments of these populations. I suppose it's just uh, a good footnote to indicate that you know this wouldn't just be for public agencies, but that if a public agency were to step into this role, that they would do so for all players within the market or all system users, you know, so that we would make sure that we really maximize this resource in a, in a comprehensive 360, 720 degree fashion. And um, that would be a very invaluable service to not just sustain our current facilities, but also to promote market entrance, you know, more uh, owners and operators to consider entering the market, especially if they can guarantee that they'll have placements for their beds that are, and I mean, there are existing programs. I know that DMH and DHS and I believe also DPH have programs where they are placing individuals. But again, the integration of all of these disparate channels and all these points of entry. I mean, we have uncontrolled uh, you know, entry from so many different uh, players within the market. You know, we have hospitals that have individual relationships with facilities. And what we really need to do is to share information and to cooperate and collaborate and to make sure that we're placing individuals with specific needs in the facilities that serve them the best. Uh, the air traffic controller, that makes a mm -hmm. lot of sense. Uh, a sixth recommendation you made, and this this actually surprised me. I, I didn't realize this. You, you mentioned that um, there are 
ownership groups who 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 have multiple uh, facilities. I, I hadn't quite realized that, and that in some cases there may be situations where they are actually moving people who come from a neighboring county into Los Angeles County. Now, I'm not trying to be a NIMBY, <laughs> but by the same token, we do have God the largest uh, uh, homelessness crisis in the country. Mm-hmm. And so... Well, it's not really being helped by Texas or Florida right now, is it? No, it's not. It's not. So what is it that, what are you trying to point us toward with respect to how jurisdictions are operating independent of each other uh, or not taking their fair share? Yeah, I think the opportunity there is for each jurisdiction to understand the needs of its local population and bring in resources um, to serve those individuals rather than, okay, LA County has a lot of these facilities, so let's just put them there and hope for the best. So that's not contributing to, um, you know, the state addressing its homelessness crisis. So, you know, working on a local level, regional level, what are what are the assets and services available? And if they're not there, build them. You know, I don't want to mention any particular county, but you know, we have a similar issue with affordable housing development and rent control and um, what do they call it when um, you have a certain percentage of your housing inventory is affordable, right? And your new construction is affordable. Inclusionary zoning, Inclusionary zoning mm-hmm. exactly. So, you know, it kind of mirrors that, except it's more on a one-to-one, you know, it's that, that dumping, which goes back a long way. I mean, really, it's a matter of procedural fairness. You know, the idea that every jurisdiction or county is doing what they can to serve the population that they so rightfully should be serving. So I just as a side question, this uh, realization that I did not previously have with respect to ownership groups owning multiple facilities. I'm just a side question. Is this perhaps a positive trend because economies of scale can be achieved if you maybe operate, I don't know, three, five, six facilities? I mean, just to speak to the, the market of the market in general, it can be a very positive thing for a smaller owner and operator. If they have more than one facility, it gives them a greater sense of financial stability, but also increases the complexity of services that they have to deliver for a larger population, potentially across multiple locations. Mm -hmm. Um, The economies of scale, certainly there's argument there. I mean, at the very top end of the market now you have um, with RCFEs, you have real estate investment trusts, which are publicly traded on the New York stock exchange. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not going to characterize those as either being good nor bad because those types of facilities principally serve, you know, people with luxury or private care needs that are not the segment of the market that we're really focused on here. But certainly for a a number of reasons, you know, I mean, if we have successful owners and operators and they're capable of operating more than one facility, then by all means, we should be supporting them and encouraging them to do so because we could use more facilities. It seems like a promising trend if we're going to try to find more entrance into this market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, a seventh recommendation you made with respect to the role of local municipalities, you point out that cities have the responsibility for land use and and planning Mm -hmm. and, and zoning. And you've got a number of recommendations in this space, but um, two in particular I I pulled. There's an importance, uh, it's an important need to educate communities to reduce the fear and stigma associated with locating licensed facilities in, we don't want them to go into commercial zones or, you know, off the side of the freeway, but actually into neighborhoods so people can walk to the library, go to the post office, uh, walk to the store, you know, so that that's important. And then also, if we are going to try to expand the inventory of facilities, that there needs to be a better responsiveness from local municipalities on the zoning, the planning, the entitlement processes for these facilities. Absolutely. I think, I mean, cities need to understand how important and vital facilities are and serving a proportion of their communities. Um, And, you know, we heard a lot around, you know, red tape um, and just long processes and, you know, stacking fees. And so that's where cities can really play a role in supporting facilities and being able to do their best work and in supporting the vulnerable populations. And further, just, you know, 
not sort of um, having them be out on an island where people don't understand who they serve or what they do. I see the opportunity as their hubs, their community hubs, you know, um, there are a lot of neighborhoods, low income neighborhoods, high crime. There's a lot more that can be done to level the playing field and create more, you know, two way, three way communication between, um, local jurisdiction operators, law enforcement, zoning, planning, and the operators and residents of facilities. So in terms of community improvement projects and greening and litter abatement and service projects and linkage, um, I met somebody, a local in our city's library system who said they were reaching out to local uh, adult residential facilities to engage them in literacy programs and reading programs. And I thought, wow, never heard that before. Right. Right. Thank you. And this is you where know, like local city council, free to go. city council people who might say we have nothing to do as the city with mental health treatment or whatever, but they do have the ability to help locate facilities in their districts. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think it goes to a larger issue of the stigmatization of mental illness and people's trepidation, the general community at large's trepidation with being with that population, understanding, you know, it's not, it doesn't exist in our family, so it doesn't exist at all. It's those people. And so I think that's where we have a lot of work to do in our system because if we don't address that, we're going to continue to have the nimbyism. And, you know, um, I would much rather have a licensed facility in my community or down the street than, you know, trip over 10 unhoused individuals yeah. on the sidewalk in 110 degree weather. Yes. And that's really the, you know, the sad thing is a lot of municipalities and prohibiting the expansion or the creation of these facilities, effectively, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. Because yeah. if you don't have a way to integrate these facilities into your community, then you have nothing and you're only really adding to the issue of, you know, vulnerable individuals not getting what they need from your community and, and really, I mean, almost effectively, uh, um, reducing, you know, the, you know, the quality of life for everybody in your community. Well said. The eighth recommendation that I pulled out, um, eight and nine relate to something actually that we haven't really talked too much about, which is the community care licensing division. Mm. Uh, maybe first, can you just describe what that is? So the community care licensing division, uh, part of the California uh, Department of Social Services is the division within that department that provides uh, licensing and regulation for all of these facilities. They have uh, uh, regional teams of, uh, uh, I suppose, staff who go out and inspect facilities. They investigate claims. They create the rules and the operating, you know, the best practice procedures and whatnot. They maintain a system of education, you know, where they have continuing education credits for individual certifications. And all of this is, you know, very well intended and it's very well designed to protect the individuals within congregate facilities in our communities. So, okay, and I have heard uh, varying degrees of anxiety <laughs> provoked by uh, a, an inspector showing up to a, a, a board and care, RC, RCFE, um, looking for violations. So it, it, it kind of runs the gamut of people who can be very uh, helpful and supportive to those who have a more punitive mindset. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we found, you know, from our research, and this was a, a surprising finding. Anecdotally, we had heard from a number of uh, um, ARF and RCFE operators and owners in the past that they had experienced difficulties, you know, with CCLD or they had thought that they were too hard. But we actually found that, you know, the majority of owners and operators were surprisingly pleased with the level of services that they had received, uh, you know, from um CCLD and they actually rated their satisfaction with the agency's performance in regulating them is, is relatively high. That being said, in terms of when we asked them about what they would like to see improved, they noted that there is a certain inconsistency in some of the staff performance in terms of how they went about their roles and that some staff were perceived as adversarial in comparison to other staff or that owners and operators who even own facilities and operate facilities in different CCLD regions reported different experiences with CCLD across those regions. So, you know, our, our uh, findings in the report, we hope, you know, that CCLD will consider that and really also focus on, you know, the cultural approach of how their, um, their staff are, 
are conducting these inspections because certainly it's really important to conduct these things without any appearance of procedural bias. But like I said, I mean, you know, from, from our research, it indicates that overall most owners and operators are, are genuinely satisfied with, with CCLD and they, they believe they're being treated fairly. So you, you, you recommend um, that there be a reconsideration of the mission of CCLD to actually help us grow and preserve and uplift these facilities. Uh, would that requ- that's not really what they're perceived to be doing right now. That's not their role. I would say that certainly we've seen some evolution of CCLD, but in terms of when we think about market regulators or regulatory agencies, either at the state or federal level, you know, oftentimes those regulatory agencies also move over into promotion of a particular industry as well. And it's, it's a, it's a difficult duty. And if that duty doesn't rest with CCLD, then perhaps there's a need for another agency or perhaps another division of the Department of Social Services or another state agency to be uh, created to assist this, the, the, this market. But then there's one other thing that is, is very valuable, and that's that there needs to be some thinking at the state level about, you know, what sort of incentives or capabilities can the state, you know, provide to owners and operators? I mean, can they reduce their licensure fees, especially for the facilities that are serving individuals relying almost solely on public benefit? Why should that facility pay a comparable license fee to a facility that serves a private or and or luxury um, uh, uh, resident population. You know, I mean, um, there are different profit potentials and different capabilities. I mean, for the uh, operators and owners that are principally serving individuals um, relying on public benefit, what are the other business incentives that we can connect them to and make it easy, you know, ease of doing business? I mean, uh, these individuals who own these facilities, they talk a lot about having difficulties obtaining insurance. Is there anything that the insurance commissioner could be doing? Is there anything that the small business uh, commissioner could be doing for them? So integrating state benefits to preserve these facilities and really thinking holistically about, you know, what is the power of the state to preserve? And, and that's not that, that's not what we're hearing right now. I love that. That's that's those those are such important insights. And another a related recommendation in the realm of CCLD is that there's a need to to increase the quality of data that they collect and that provide. I mean, even what you have all done with your report is filling a gap in data that you would think the state would have collected over the years. How important is this data to, to being able to move forward with this system? You know, I would love to do nothing more with government than to put myself out of business <laughs> as an external consultant. There's certain data, you know, I've, I've worked with um, state-level justice organizations, state-level transport organizations, state-level small business commission, and this is principally in Australia for a number of years. But in terms of data collection, there's so much more that a regulatory agency or a state or even, you know, a county could potentially capture to really understand their market. And I know that there has been a long trend, especially in the United States, about moving analysts out of government agencies. And there's a heavy reliance on consultants like us. And, you know, I mean, there are some agencies that have some really, really good uh, centers of excellence in terms of uh, data analysis. And, you know, um, that's that's really commendable. But we need to flow that back into government so that people can make evidence-based decisions and really inform the policy and how they expend funds and how they can improve and innovate. And that's another thing is we need to talk about integration and innovation and the interface of all these different, everyone has their information in silos. And it's funny, this came up in LA times article uh, the other day too, which is actually the board of supervisors um, commenting how it seems like certain agencies within government are siloed. Well, I mean, we've been observing this for years and we need to break down these silos. We need to share data more freely and openly. We, we, we need integration of policy discussions. Um, you know, Layla likes to talk a lot about whole person care. I think I'll, I'll pitch this off to her. But, yeah, we need to talk about whole person care, right, Layla? <laughs> yeah, whole person care. I mean, if you have, um, you know, different agencies serving the same individuals and who's going to show up today and how much can operators actually do to 
support the individuals if they're coming in. Maybe they have a nursing degree or maybe they, you know, had another business or maybe they just inherited their mom's house and they open a facility and they did their 40 or 80 hours of training. They need the support of the resources in their community. And I think there's a lot happening through the Department of Healthcare Services right now with CalAIM and um, Enhanced Care Management that, you know, I don't believe licensed facility owners and operators are in that conversation. Conversation. I don't believe that CCLD is, you know, looking at that as an opportunity for who they serve because they're still over to one side. And so it's like the left hand needs to talk to the right hand or left brain, right brain. Let's bring it all together. Uh, so that actually brings me to the final recommendation that I pulled, which I think ties a bow on pretty much everything you said. And it relates to the cohort of market facility owners and operators. You you make many recommendations that the owners and operators need to come together as one voice to advocate for what they need. You, we've talked about them being invisible, unseen, unheard, having a, a seat at the table, being involved in these conversations. And we know from experience that this is really challenging for people who are working 24-7 to keep their facilities open. And, uh, you know, the last thing they can do is head to Sacramento to lobby or spend time talking to their elected official. And so I do want to just touch upon the fact that in L.A. County, and I I think this is a a great testament to how the county and the Department of Mental Health saw the need for an association of of operators. They they call it the LARCA. So let me see if I can get it right. The Los Angeles... Um, Licensed Adult Residential Care Association. There you go. Okay. And I also credit the Hilton Foundation, I believe, as a major philanthropy that helped to do the, the seed funding to get this, this going. And I hope it can, it can stay in, in, in existence. Well, we actually helped uh, um, NAMI GLAC, the National Alliance uh, on a Mental Illness, uh, Greater Los Angeles County, under contract to Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. We helped them establish LARCA. We sat there from the very first day before the association had a name and helped you know, work collaboratively with a group of community advocates and leaders and stakeholders to you know, hire up the staff and to put the put the uh, uh, wheels on the car and put the car on the road. So we're really pleased that we got to be involved in that um, from the very beginning. And yes, we highly encourage people to, you know, especially if you're an owner and operator, to join LARCA and to really, you know, have your voice heard. You know, I mean, um, LA County DMH got the founding, uh, the, sorry, the, the seed funding for LARCA for the first two years. And I hear that uh, they're continuing to fund. I heard that LARCA also got a grant from the Hilton Foundation. So definitely a lot of good things happening with uh, Benny Tinson and his, you know, you know his uh, leadership in that association right now. That's 10 out of 50 recommendations, 50 plus. Um, but uh, 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 Who's counting? Who's counting? I, I have a couple of final questions, and I also just want to give you the opportunity, like, Carrie, you forgot to bring this up or that up that, that is a, a burning issue for you. The first question I have is, how has this report been received? And um, where do you see people are actually paying attention? That gives you a little hope. You know, it's interesting. Um We've received a lot of positive feedback, especially with the Los Angeles Times reporting, and we're grateful to Jacqueline Cosgrove for doing that article. But, you know, we realize it's a lot to take in. It's a 93,000-plus 90, word report. I believe it's well over 230 pages. I did read pages. every word. It's a tome. It's, it's, it's a labor-intensive read. What we're hoping is that, you know, when people have more time to distill and, and really, you know, dig into what's important to them, uh, that, that we'll hear a bit more back. Um, like I said, for the for the uh, decision makers that we know that have been made aware of the report, we're aware that you know either they or their their um, analysts or their aides or their their uh, folks are looking at these reports, and we're sure that we're going to be hearing a lot in the near future. Uh, presently, we're, we're we're engaged in a contract with uh, Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, and we're assisting them with some project management, some other needs relating to some of um, you know the funding that's come through from the state. And we're having a lot of really great conversations like this conversation with you right now. Yeah, um, I absolutely. I think it's been very well received, and we're just hoping to be able to build on it. Um, we think that there's additional you know research opportunities and opportunity to hone in on how to integrate um, and, you know, maybe figure out what 
where these recommendations sit, who's going to champion them. And, you know, that's what we want to support. And I think we also really want to support seeing this research done across the state. Because I think we think that would be really useful and impactful. For someone listening to this today, if they feel like they've been inspired or intrigued, um, is there anything you would suggest people can do to be helpful in this space? You know, what would be really helpful and what we hear from a lot of, uh, especially ARF owners, is that they're really under-resourced. Um, yes, they are business operators, but at the same time, they're doing really good work to help individuals with, with significant needs. You know, consider volunteering. You know, consider visiting and asking your local ARF operator if you could be of assistance. Support your local ARF operator, you know, with your local city council and, you know, have them improve their policies and their services to the ARFs in your communities. If you hear about an ARF or RCFP in your local community that might be closing or is experiencing difficulties, get in touch with them and find out, you know, can, can we can we get you some sort of support, especially if you know other um, systems or agencies or nonprofits that support, try to make connections. You know, if we all do our part to create a web on which we can sustain all of these facilities, then they'll be stronger together and maybe we can expand them and create additional capacity to serve more uh, vulnerable individuals that need our help. Well said. Very good. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Well, I just thank you both for just the, the, care and attention to doing such a thorough research study. I, 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 it's hard to imagine that it is not going to make an impact. And like I said, uh, everybody needs to um, reach out to their elected officials, make sure that they share this podcast. You know, Definitely. If, they, if they don't want to read the 93,000 words, they can at least listen to this while they're taking a, a walk on the beach. And, um, and I, I thank you for being committed in this space. It's so important. And I have hope that your research is going to make a difference. No, thanks a lot, Carrie. Thank you for having us. Yeah. We're grateful. Great to see you both. And I just wish you the good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, friends, for joining us on this two-part conversation about the state of licensed residential care facilities in Los Angeles County. If you are listening from another county in California, I would encourage you to share these two episodes and the report with your local officials because a similar inventory needs to be accomplished throughout the state to protect these beds. The human repercussions associated with closing down these facilities is by no means limited to Los Angeles County. This is a statewide issue, and it will arguably take intentional state intervention to shore up the financing of both facilities and services to reimagine the role of the Community Care Licensing Division in this space, and to possibly spawn a new business model so we can see new entrants into this market in the future. If you are in LA County, may I strongly encourage you to join the Licensed Adult Residential Care Association, LARCA. You can certainly join as a facility operator, and I am happy to report that they have created a new membership category called Friends of LARCA, and that is what we all need to become to lend our voice to protecting these homes. Next time, we will be doing an exploration into occupational science and occupational therapy and how the fundamental principles associated with that discipline resonates with what I witnessed in the community-based psychosocial model of mental health care in Trieste. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. And I am grateful for the technical support of Aaron Stern and the studio at Verdugo Sound. See you next time.